My biggest fear at the moment is a lack of understanding of this technology, what it's capable of, what its limitations are, and that the people at the top of companies and agencies and media, you know, outlets and publishers, whatever, the ones that are going to make the decisions about the impact on staffing probably don't understand the technology driving those decisions. Welcome to the Marketing AI Show, the podcast that helps your business grow smarter by making artificial intelligence approachable and actionable. You'll hear from top authors, entrepreneurs, researchers, and executives as they share case studies, strategies, and technologies that have the power to transform your business and your career. My name is Paul Reitzer. I'm the founder of Marketing AI Institute, and I'm your host. Welcome to episode 40 of the Marketing AI Show. I'm your host, Paul Reitzer, along with my co-host, Mike Caput, who, where were you at last week? I was in San Francisco. Where were you? I was in Florida. Okay. You were talking AI with agencies, right? Like an agency I was. event? Yeah, at the uh, Agency Builders Retreat, which was a small kind of exclusive event for about 100, 150 agency owners and executives. And okay. it was uh, an eye-opening session for both myself and the audience about what was possible with AI and marketing agencies. Definitely uh, got tons of questions after. I uh, think I scared a few people, but they were scared in a good way. Like they, <laughs> someone told me I'm scared, but in a good way, because I just need to move with some urgency. Well, that's good. I, I was out at uh, the Pavilion CMO Summit. So it was really cool. It was a group of, I don't know, it was like 100, 150 people, maybe, uh, I think, at the event. But it was great. I mean, like lots of questions at the CMO level, lots of people, you know, really trying to figure this out. But yeah, you know, I will say for our listeners, like if you're early in this and feeling overwhelmed, you are not alone. Like the, <laughs> the more Mike and I are kind of out doing talks and meeting with people and engaging with the community, the more you realize like people are, are really struggling to move on this and do more than like a use case. So yeah, I, I don't know. I, and, you know, big topic, obviously, this week, we've got our AI for write, uh, Writers Summit. It's coming up on is it Thursday. Yep. It's like, yeah, really got to build that deck. <laughs> Anybody who's a regular listener knows that uh, I have not built my deck yet. And uh, that, that has continued. So it's partially really good. I didn't build it not because I'm lazy and uh, didn't want to. I haven't built it because everything keeps moving so quickly. I've been trying to figure out like, what is the most impactful thing I can say about the state of AI and writing? And it's obviously changed just in the last two weeks. Like we yeah. had, you know, GPT-4 comes out and now we have plugins, which we're going to talk about. And it's just such a rapidly moving space. And there's so many things I, I want to say and I think need to say. And yet I got like 25 minutes to do it after I do like the introduction. <laughs> so there may be a continuation of the AI for Writers Summit, but we have a great event planned. This this uh, episode is brought to us by the AI for Writers Summit. It's just AI uh, for Writer Summit.com. Is that what is it? AI, AI Writer Summit.com. There we go. Um, so I've got to talk. Mike's got to talk on tools and technologies. May have beep from writers going to be talking about, you know, the impact of AI and writing teams. We have a, a fireside chat with Ann Hanley. We have an amazing panel. Uh, talking about the future of AI and writing. So that's all coming up uh, Thursday, March 30th from 12 to 4 p.m. If you can't join us, there's going to be an on-demand option. So it's free if you um, attend live. There's a paid on-demand option. 
So if you, if you can't make it for whatever reason, you know, just, uh, you can grab information from the site about how to get the information and the uh, class on demand. It goes from 12 to 4 PM Eastern time. Uh, so check that out. If you're interested, if you're a writer, editor, uh, publisher, you're managing a content team, uh, we're going to try and get into, we're not going to have all the answers. Like I will tell you right now, we do not have answers for all of this, but we're going to try and at least ask a lot of the hard questions and provide some guidance on impact on individuals and teams and use cases and technologies and and try and just have an open discussion on where this is all going. It's going to end with a one-hour Q&A with some of the speakers. And I, I think we're all going to be learning together, honestly. Like this, every day that comes, every new technology or new advancement, it's just trying to process it in real time. And it's a lot to, to take in. So yeah, join us for that, AIWritersummit.com. Uh, and learn more about that event. A quick thank you to all of our sponsors. Our presenting sponsor is Writer at writer.com. Got GoCharlie, Visla, Visla, Hyperwrite, Rasa.io, Demandwell, Gloss AI, and Copymatic. We really appreciate them stepping up, stepping up for an inaugural event and supporting it and making it all possible. All right, with that, I'm going to turn it over to Mike. If you're new to the show, we do three main topics, and then we end with a rapid fire. We were remixing right before we got, <laughs> got on it. We were recording this on Monday morning, March 27th. Uh, it's just, everything is changing so quickly. It's like, what do you even talk about sometimes? Which of these do we choose? So Mike, kick us off. Let's go. Will do. And the good thing is we always have the audience covered to the point where sometimes we will rewrite the script, you know, minutes before the show. So it is up to date. Which we may possible. or may not have done for this one. <laughs> <laughs> so first up, get ready. Chat GPT now has eyes, ears, and internet access. So OpenAI just announced a plugin system for ChatGPT, and this plugin system enables it to interact with the wider world through the internet. The plugins are developed in large part by third-party companies like Expedia, Instacart, and Slack, and they allow users to perform a variety of tasks that use these sites from right within ChatGPT. So you can be instructing ChatGPT to accomplish tasks and it will rely on plugins from these sites to do so. So OpenAI itself is actually hosting three of these plugins. One is a plugin that gives ChatGPT access to up-to-date information on the internet. There's a Python code interpreter, and there's also a retrieval plugin that allows users to ask questions of your own documents, files, notes, emails, and also for public documentation. So what's also really important to note here, I think, is that of the plugins initially announced, one of them is a plugin with Zapier, which itself integrates with thousands of other tools, so acting as kind of a force multiplier and how many tools you can start using ChatGPT with right out of the box. Now, as of today, there's a wait list to access the plugins for developers and ChatGPT Plus users. So we are eagerly awaiting the ability to connect ChatGPT to elements of the internet and also other really popular services that we use every day. So I wanted to kick things off, Paul, and ask you, did we just open up a whole new world of AI use cases for marketers, business people, individuals? Like, which what should we be thinking about here first? Yeah, it's a really big deal. Um, so the the main things, if you look at the announcement page, there's actually like they have their documentation, kind of the explanation, some of what you were just going through. I think the key thing to focus on is, as you said, to, to right now, GPT-4 
um, its training data basically ends around September 2021. So anything that has occurred, any new information, new context, events, none of that is in its knowledge base. And so first, obviously, connecting to the internet, the browsing capability is key. Now, I actually do have access to that. So if you're a chat GPT plus user, you can join the wait list. I got access pretty quickly. I would say it was like three hours after they announced this. I was able to get the browser access. I do not have any of the other plugins, so I can't speak specifically to them. But the browser one works really well. And it's interesting because it'll actually tell you like if, what page it's looking at to hmm. find the question. So let's say like right now we're in what the final four for men's basketball, college basketball. So if I were to say which teams are in the final four, it may actually show like querying ESPN.com. Like it'll tell you where it's looking for the information, summarizing the information, and then it actually spits it out. And so you can actually see now where did it get this from? How did it summarize this information? And you can actually start to see how it might actually drive traffic back to the source a little bit more than before, where you just like weren't really seeing where it was getting the information from. Mm. So just that on its own is a really practical use case. But previously, all it could do was emit text. And so you had alluded to this, but this is moving into that like world of bits stuff we talked about in a previous episode where the AI's agents can actually start taking actions on your behalf. So whether it's booking trips or um, you know, uh, getting you a reservation at a restaurant. Like as you start plugging in all of these different applications and data sources, you can actually not only access that proprietary information, you can take action or the agent can take action on your behalf. So that's the thing that's like really key. So on the browser aspect where it's getting real-time information, it can start to solve, you know, we've talked about this hallucination issue or just make stuff up. That enables you to start solving for that, but that access to proprietary information becomes a really critical component. And so, like when it first came out, you know, you, you kind of watch for what are other people saying. So, a couple, there's this uh, guy, Dr. Jim Fan, who's a, a AI scientist at NVIDIA, and he tweeted, "Opening, I just announced ChatGPT plugins. If ChatGPT's debut was the iPhone event, today is the iOS App Store event." Um, and that was kind of a universal thing. I saw that an, a number of times. Um, there was another one, uh, Darmesh uh, said the GPT-4 launch was big. The chat GPT plugins launch is even bigger. OpenAI took the chat interface and turned it into a chat ecosystem. It's the app store for chat. So I think for people who are trying to like understand, well, what actually is it? Imagine your iPhone before it had all the apps and the utility you have in your iPhone with all of these apps. But rather than you having to keep like going into all these apps, you're just gonna do everything through text communication. So you'll be in the chat GPT interface and anything you want, you can just ask it of. So maybe you plug in your analytics data or your CRM data or your sales pipeline information and you can just ask questions of it without having to like leave that interface. And the Zapier integration you mentioned is a critical one because they have what, 5,000 or something yeah. app integrations. So on their site, like there's a page we'll link to. Um, they say, we're excited to share that Zapier ChatGPT plugin is part of the first batch of providers in this new ecosystem. This new product now in beta can pull in thousands of apps from your tech stack and allows you to automate tasks directly with ChatGPT's interface. So again, you're in ChatGPT in your browser and you can now have access to anything Zapier is connected to in your tech stack. 
Um, it's powered by their natural language actions API. Again, actions is a word you're just going to keep hearing over and over again, uh, that you can use simple natural language to complete actions in other apps. You can ask it, ask it to execute any of Zapier's 50,000 actions, so search, update, write, whatever it is, um, turns your chat into action. It can write emails and send it for you, find contacts in your CRM, update them directly, add rows to a spreadsheet, you know, Slack message, anything you can imagine you can do. And then they kind of end with that the chat GPT plugin for Zapier is just the beginning, but it can already extend the power of AI chatbots, allowing users to go beyond simple conversations and instead perform business critical tasks with thousands of apps. After all, if chatbots can perform actions in the real world, the sky is your limit when power, powering your work. So I think that that to me is the biggest takeaway here is like, not only is all of a sudden chat GPT is a platform, like now we're going to start doing more and more things. We're not just going to be writing content or doing searches. You're going to be able to interact with all these plugins and it's going to be just a flood of plugins. Like it's going to be wild how quickly these things come in. And the other thing I'll say is it kind of reminds me of like what Alexa wanted to be with all mm -hmm. those skills and like how you were just supposed to be able to ask Alexa for stuff, but then you never had a clue what it actually knew how to do or what it was connected to. And so for me, at least Alexa just never delivered on the utility it was promising and I just stopped using it really early on and it's kind of like what Siri should have been or maybe still might try and be mm. but I don't know I mean it's a major move by them to become a true utility and, and all through text you know you know language and chat it's kind of fascinating talk to us a little bit more about the app store, I, I, the open AI app store. I mean, it feels like this is a game changing ecosystem. I mean, like you said, it turns this into a platform. What are the implications here? Are we going to see every single popular service and company have a chat GPT plugin? It sure seems that way. I, I mean, just the, again, this is all, what is this like 72 hours old? Like it's, <laughs> it's pretty fresh. Um, but I mean, my immediate thing was I started thinking about analytics data. Like the mm -hmm. first obvious use case to me is like, let's say you're, you use QuickBooks or, or Stripe or um, even Google Analytics. I, I don't know if it would work with Google, but think about all the places where you have data living and that you have to go in and look for reporting. So like, I got to go into HubSpot. I got to go into QuickBooks for this and HubSpot for that and Salesforce for this and my social media platform for that. And like... Just imagine it all is just connected to ChatGPT instead. And rather than having all these places you go log into, you can literally just ask anything of the ChatGPT interface and it'll just pull from the appropriate plugin. So now I don't necessarily have to go log in to find that information. And, you know, we've talked about it on the show before, how many times are we zooming each other, like sending a quick message in Slack or whatever and saying, Hey, like, where are we at with AI for writer summit registration? How many people did, you know, registered yesterday after the newsletter went out, what was the open rate of that email? And I just gave you three different tasks and now it's mm -hmm. like, Oh man. Okay. And now we got to go in. Someone on the team's got to go in and like pull three different reports and you spend like seven minutes, minimum, just, just to like grab three data points. Right now, imagine that same scenario. I'm just in chat GPT at 12 o'clock at night, like whatever. I'm in the middle doing something. I think, oh, where are we at with that? And I just asked chat GPT instead and it's connected to HubSpot. And it's like, hey, where are we at with this registration total? Spits it out. How many people you know, registered yesterday? Spits it out. Did anybody register at companies with more than a billion in revenue? Spits out a list of those people. <laughs> it's just like, 
So now we truly get to that world of bits concept where not only do I have access to real-time information, but I can say, hey, you know, send the team a reminder tomorrow morning to follow up with anybody that's over a billion in revenue. Like those are ICP, whatever. So now you can start to actually do strategy and action on top of this data set. And so that's, you know, it's really, I haven't had time to honestly sit down and really think about this deeply about all the implications of this. Yeah. But I do think it's just going to explode in terms of how many plugins there's going to be and the utility of those plugins. It's going to create massive complexity again, because nobody knows what to do about this. Like, again, we're still trying to explain what language models are to people and what chat GPT is. Like I, I, I'm like, when we do our intro to AI for marketers class, I think last time we had 81% of people said they had experimented with chat GPT. We asked that question up front. That was last week. Um, when I was at the pavilion event, the CMO summit, I asked, and and I I don't know, like 20, 30% of the people in the room had done it. Mm. So these are the, this is the C-suite. So, I mean, we're still at a moment while as, you know, people listening to this podcast are probably racing ahead. You've been experimenting with ChatGPT since the day it came out. You probably got Dolly and Midjourney and Stable Diffusion. And like, you're probably a you know, early adopter of all this tech. And this isn't new to you, but I'm telling you right now, the agencies Mike is talking to, the CMOs I'm talking to, they don't know all this stuff. They're, it's abstract to them. They're still afraid of it in a lot of ways. And they're not racing forward and testing it like you may be. And so I, I think sometimes we even get caught in our own little bubble because we talk about this stuff all the time and we see it and we experiment with it. That is not the norm. Like, don't assume that people in the marketing and business world have even remotely figured this stuff out yet because they have not. Um, the amount of change we've seen since December 1st of last year is it, it is literally like five years of innovation packed into four months. Um, and a lot of people have not caught up. I Sometimes I feel like I'm not caught up. It's like I, you turn the internet off for like four hours during the day. And you're like, well, what the hell just happened? Like, yeah, I missed how many announcements in four hours? Like, <laughs> okay. So, yeah, I, I think it's just going to be, it's it's going to be a really big deal. And I'm not sure we really comprehend how big of a deal yet. So before we move on to our second topic, I wanted to really quickly hit on this one point, which, and you can talk as much or as little about this as you see fit, but I felt like when I read this announcement in one fell swoop, OpenAI just caused an existential threat for thousands of existing startups, plugins, services, features that people are building. How does this impact builders, founders, or investors? Yeah, I think, that's probably right. Um, there was David Sachs, who you know is one of the early PayPal guys and um, early investors in Facebook, and you know we've, we've talked about him before. They have the All In podcast, which is like the number one business podcast in the world. He had tweeted, "Plugins could create an interesting network effect for OpenAI. Developers provide the AI with more info in order to access capabilities. AI gets smarter. Developers want to use the smartest AI. AI sucks in all the world's knowledge. <laughs> so <laughs> it's like, oh, just just this little thing." So I think there's going to be a race to build on top of this, because I think it's where people are going to go, but it does then create these challenges for software companies. It's like, well, are people going to stop coming to our platform then? Like, is it going to change the way people use the software we have? Um, Is it going to change how quickly existing software companies could be obsoleted? Like, does it, does the threat matrix actually, did it just move 
on these mm-hmm. software companies because there was a there was one other tweet I saw, um, and, and this is a little technical, but like just bear with me for a second. It says I've developed a lot of plugin systems, and the OpenAI Jet GPT plugin interface might be the damn craziest and most oppressive approach I've ever seen in computing in my entire life. For those who aren't aware. You write an OpenAI manifest for your API, which again, I don't do this stuff, but that, that's not very hard to do if this is what you do. Use human language descriptions for everything, and that's it. You let the model figure out how to do everything else. So basically, you just say, here, OpenAI, we, ha- we have all this data, all this information living up here in the CRM or whatever it is. Here's our, open a- our API. You connect the things, and then you basically just tell it what you want it to have access to, and then it, f- it just does everything else. So basically, the, my takeaway is it's insanely simple to build plugins is pretty much what this says. So this ChatGPT plugins are super simple to implement. Basically, just document your API, but for a language model rather than human. And let me just, I, I want to make sure I give proper attribution here. This is um, Mitchell Hashimoto, um, who is founder of HashiCorp. So... And that was retweeted by Greg Brockman, the CTO of OpenAI. So I know he's a legitimate source. So I'm just picking some random person here. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's going to be very disruptive. I don't, I don't know yet how or how exactly it's going to play out or how quickly. Hmm. But it sure seems like again, if you're a software company, like every week you just got to be like head on a swivel. Like what, what is going on? I, I got to imagine SaaS companies saw this coming. Like the. Nobody was talking about this that I knew of before this happened, but it sure seems like an obvious play in retrospect that they would do this. So if chat GPT plugins weren't enough for your software company or individual to worry about, our second topic today also concerns OpenAI and GPT-4. So to set this up, back in episode 36, we talked about OpenAI publishing a blog post essentially warning about the risks and considerations around artificial general intelligence or AGI. Now, there are a lot of different definitions and a lot of lack of clarity around what AGI actually means. There's massive arguments within the industry if something like AGI in whatever definitions we talk about, it's even possible. But OpenAI defines this concept of AGI as either Highly autonomous systems that outperform humans at most economically valuable work or in other places on their website, they've said AGI is AI systems that are generally smarter than humans and benefit all of humanity. Now, in both cases, the reason they're publishing these definitions is OpenAI has a stated mission to attempt to bring AGI into existence. And the reason we're talking about this is because Uh, This past week, a team of Microsoft AI scientists claim that GPT-4, the latest version of OpenAI's language model, which came out, uh, I think, 10, 12 days ago, that it exhibits what they say are, quote, sparks of human-level intelligence or AGI. Now, as we'll discuss a little bit, they don't really get into a one- or two-line definition of here's exactly what AGI is, but they argue that GPT-4's impressive performance in a wide range of tasks like math, coding, and legal exams indicate its potential as an early version of some type of AGI system. Now, again, while some argue that even this entire concept of AGI is a pipe dream, others, like 
Sam Altman, CEO at OpenAI, believe that if it is doable, that it would usher in a new era eventually for humanity. And this research seems to indicate that at least some very smart people at some very big companies in AI believe we are developing the very beginning of such a system. Now, I just want to kick off kind of, Paul, when you read this, how legitimate is this? Should we be taking it seriously at all? Yeah, so I, I think I've shared on the podcast before, like some of the ways that I try and stay at sort of the forefront of what's happening is you monitor the latest research papers. So when this one sort of hit my, hit my radar on Friday, now keep in mind that Friday I'm in San Francisco, um, taking a red eye back from this event. Um, and so I'm like trying to think, okay, do I have the energy on this red eye to read a 154 page research paper from Microsoft? I tried, I failed. I did not make it through the paper as I was flying through the night across time zones, but it's from Microsoft. So they had early access to this technology and the abstract, if you never read one of these research papers, they start with an abstract that's usually, you know, between two and 400 words, maybe 500 and then the conclusion. And so oftentimes what I'll do, cause these things can get pretty dense. They're often highly technical. You can just read the abstract and the conclusion, and then you can kind of follow even just the subheads. Like you can kind of scan this thing and get a sense is this a really important paper, but more importantly, often is where is it coming from? Like who, who are the sources for this? And so this one did capture my attention immediately because it was from Microsoft research. And so I'm just going to, I'll read a few quick excerpts from the abstract. Now, again, we're, we're not going to go deep on AGI today. We're not going to like, you know, get kind of more than a surface level here, but I think what's really important is just we we've talked before, this is why OpenAI exists. It's why Google DeepMind exists. It is why many of the top researchers in the world work for these labs is because they believe AGI is possible and they are pursuing it. Now, there are some that do think we're actually getting quite close. And that was why when I saw this, I was like, well, wait a second, this is the first time I've actually heard someone say they think this is, this might be it. Mm -hmm. And that's why I was like, oh, and that's Microsoft saying this, like, okay, is, is OpenAI in agreement? And so I'll come back to that in a second, but here's the quick, quick excerpts from the abstract. So artificial intelligence researchers have been developing and refining large language models that exhibit remarkable capabilities across a variety of domains and tasks, challenging our understanding of learning and cognition. Um, with the latest GPT-4 model that they were experimenting with, we contend that this early version of GTP-4 is part of a new cohort of large language models, along with ChatGPT and Google's Palm, for example, that exhibit more general intelligence than previous models. We demonstrate that beyond its mastery of language, GPT-4 can solve novel and difficult tasks that span mathematics, coding, vision, medicine, law, psychology, and more without needing any special prompting. Moreover, in all of these tasks, GPT-4's performance is strikingly close to human level performance and often vastly surpasses prior models such as ChatGPT. Given the breadth and depth of GPT-4's capabilities, we believe it could be reasonably viewed as an early, parentheses, yet still incomplete, version of an artificial general intelligence system. We discuss the challenges ahead for advancing towards deeper and more comprehensive versions of AGI, including the possible need for pursuing a new paradigm that moves beyond next word prediction, which is what large language models do. 
So when you just read that abstract, they're wording around it a little bit. Like, I think they're trying to not be definitive that this is indeed AGI, but the original title of this thing that was still embedded in the code was something to the effect of like first contact with AGI. And then they changed it apparently at the last minute. So it almost feels like they wanted to be more definitive that they believe this actually is AGI. Um, so I, again, I, we have said multiple times in this episode, I don't even, or this, this show, I don't even know that it truly matters if we ever achieve universally agreed upon AGI because mm -hmm. the definition is, is so vague. Um, just look at what is becoming possible with whatever it is we have currently landed on. Whatever GPT-4 is, if, if there's a spectrum of AGI and some people think we're 20% of the way there or 80% of the way there, like it doesn't really matter to me. Like, look at the power it already possesses. And we know it's early. Mm -hmm. And so, like, I'm still listening to the two and a half hour Sam Altman interview with Lex yeah, Friedman. <laughs> and he asks them about it. And Sam's like, I, you know, it, if in retrospect, someone tells me or if an, I think he said if an oracle told me that GPT-10 was an AGI, like, I believe it. Like, he, he sees what they're doing as a path to get there. Um, and he thinks that there's some things that might be needed to truly achieve it, but he also wouldn't be surprised if the path they're on actually does achieve it. So again, I think it's just, you know, I think there's listeners to this show who, who want to know what's coming around the corner and want to be ready for it, not just solve for today's use cases and technologies. And this is going to be an ongoing, really important topic to pay attention to and to monitor the progress of. Because it's going to be really hard to prepare for this if you're not part of the process. And that's why GP, that's why OpenAI is doing what they're doing, where they're releasing things in public before they're really ready for prime time, like GPT-4. They want to condition society for the, the big thing. And so they've said before, like, we don't want to just drop AGI in the world and say, here, figure it all out. So they're trying to release these versions that may be perceived as moving very close to AGI so that we have a chance as a society to s figure out what this all means. And I think we're doing a version of that or attempting to in discussing this topic at all for the audience, because at some point, if we're talking about AGI as in some version or whatever you want to call this thing as a reality today, you're going to see more developments around it. And now is the time to start understanding, at the very least, that we're talking about a very real research paper looking at very real capabilities of a very real model that came out two weeks ago. We're not talking about the Terminator or, you know, killer robots or anything. This is Or some like, random Twitter thread from some random exactly. user with 200 followers. Like, this is legit stuff. It's not peer-reviewed yet because it's published on Archive, but it, it, it's legitimate technology with 154 pages worth of charts and experiments and... Yeah, you know, it's, it's crazy. It really is. It's, uh, I didn't realize we'd be having the AGI conversation seriously this early. I thought <laughs> we had maybe a couple more decades, but who knows? <laughs> At least a couple more years. Yeah, right. So this is actually a really good segue into our third main topic because it does show. Bring it back to earth now. Let's right. Come back we're, to reality. It, we're, we're coming back to reality and the reality itself is pretty impressive and it shows what's possible when these systems become really, really good at a lot of different things. So I want you to imagine for a second 
using AI to complete a massive business project in just 30 minutes. I want you to imagine you could accomplish tasks that would take humans hours or even days. This is, of course, something that actually happened. In a remarkable experiment, a Wharton professor, Ethan Mollick, used a combination of AI tools to market the launch of an educational game. So in 30 minutes, he did everything using just natural language prompts and inputs. From He conducted market research. He had AI create an email campaign. He had it design a basic website. He had it craft a social media campaign, and he completed multiple other tasks in half an hour. Now, the results of this, which we'll link to the full description of in the show notes, really just showed the unprecedented potential of AI as your kind of co-pilot, as this multiplier of human effort, which has huge implications that we'll talk about for the future of work, productivity, and creativity. So I think it's really helpful and jaw-dropping to quantify the outputs that happened over the course of this 30 minutes. So over the course of these, this 30-minute, you know, blitzing through an entire marketing program, Malik used no more than 20 inputs, actions, or prompts, and he, as a result, generated 9,200 words of content. He got a working HTML and CSS file. He generated 12 images. He generated a voice file a movie file, and he used these assets in tandem with AI to create a marketing position document, an entire email campaign, the website, logo, script, and video, and social. As he put it, AI would do all the work. I would just offer directions. So I kind of was pretty stunned reading this. Like he shares in the entire post, you know, the quality of the outputs um, and what he was able to do within 30 minutes. I was pretty stunned personally. I mean, we've always known these tools can increase productivity in an exponential fashion, but seeing it actually happen was another thing entirely. So I just wanted to kind of start off by addressing the elephant in the room. Is this the new normal for marketers? Yeah, I, I mean, the tangible takeaway for me is obviously it was an experiment, but I put this on LinkedIn on a Sunday morning. So like, not everybody's checking LinkedIn on Sunday mornings. <laughs> so I shared this with a, a little bit of context. 20, not even 24 hours later, we're recording this. That LinkedIn post has 48,500 impressions and 270 engagements and 49 reposts. So this resonated with people is what mm -hmm. I'm saying here. <laughs> like it, it is that back to earth, tangible example of how this can be used. And he did it with a collection of tools that combined cost less than $60 a month. You and I worked together at my agency for a really long time. I owned a marketing agency for 16 years. If I had to break this down and scope this in a proposal, I can't fathom this list of things wouldn't have cost between 10 and $20,000 less than all those things you just explained, minimum 10 to $20,000 and probably a month of work. He did it in 30 minutes. Now, is it perfect? Would you actually launch the campaign with this? Probably not. You probably need to do some editing and the website might need some adjustments and you got to do Q, you know, quality testing and all this stuff. But I mean, what, maybe like another five hours of work, you're going to knock this thing out. So I think like if you pay an agency to do this work, if you are an agency that gets paid to do this work, or if you're just a corporate marketing team or maybe an individual contractor, 
think about how much time it would take you to do this in a traditional vehicle. And he used four AI tools that cost 60 bucks to do this entire experiment. So I think that to me is like, it's just representative of the fundamental transformation we are going through at the moment. And some of the comments on my LinkedIn thing, like there's people who are like, why are people parting this? Like, why are they cheering this on? Like, this is terrifying. Mm. Like, this is what we do for a living. And like, you have people in these comments like, oh, this is amazing. It's so great. And I just, I didn't take a stand on it one way or the other. I was just sharing the information and say, hey, look, this is really interesting. And you do, you have some people in the comments who are like, this is incredible. Like this changes everything. It's so great. And other people are like, oh my God, what's, what are humans going to do when the machines do all the work? Like, do we need universal basic income? And, and you have like this, like the fear factor emerges, but these are real concerns and questions that we don't have answers to. And so it's also representative of how unprepared the business world and society and the economy are for what's about to happen. Um, so that's why I actually love the experiment. I thought it was just very thought provoking. Yeah. And I, I do think it's helpful to like really see how tangible this is. I'm going to read you a couple of the prompts that he used. So he has AI as a marketing strategist. Um, now they had created this Saturn parable game. So it was able to like know this, but he said, look up the business simulation market, look up Wharton interactive Saturn parable. So it's like, okay, cool. And it went and found it. Then he says, pretend you are a marketing genius. We are going to launch the Saturn parable. You should give me a document that outlines an email marketing campaign and a single web page to promote the game. It does it. Then he goes on to give some additional prompts. It creates four additional emails. Uh, then he goes, AI is a site developer. Outline the web page and what text and graphics it uses. You do not need to create the web page, but do give me the text. So it writes a web page for him. Um, then he goes on and says, you are an expert site designer. You are creating the launch announcement page for Saturn Parable outlined below. And then he gives like the outline. Create the following web page. Make it an HTML page that I can run on my computer. List any additional assets I will need to make it work and where to put them. So again, if, if you are listening to this and you've never done the prompting of an AI agent, this is how it works. Like he's telling it the system, you are this system. And then he's saying, here's what I want you to do system. And then you can kind of keep iterating on that information. So then he needs a hero image. So he asks it to create an image. Uh, it does it in mid journey, shows the completed website. He's like, oh, this doesn't look great. So I tell the designer, the hero image looks weird because it's magnified on the top and bottom. Can you fix it? So it fixes it in the CSS file. And then he goes in as AI is a social media manager. Can you write me the social media campaign? I need to promote this thing using or this using the Wharton accounts on social. So it creates it and it does goal, audience, strategy, content plan. Like it builds a plan. Like it doesn't just give the, and then it goes, um, show me some example posts. So it writes sample posts for Facebook and Twitter. And then finally it uses 11 labs and DID, D dash. I don't know if it's did or whatever that is, but they actually, he creates a script and then he creates a synthetic actor to record the video. And then it goes into like, as you outlined all of this in 30 minutes, like it's wild. Like it's really hard to comprehend, but I think it makes it very tangible. Again, we don't need AGI to change everything. GPT-4 in its current environment without the plugin ecosystem mm. can enable stuff like this. Like, where are we going to be in three months, six months, 12 months? I have no idea. Like as much as we live this stuff every day, it's really hard for me to wrap my head around how much this is really going to change the future of work, the future of business. Like it's hard to think about. 
<laughs> so all that being said, I don't want to put you on the spot, but do you have any kind of first draft thoughts about what you're thinking about when it comes to employment or productivity or work as a whole? I mean, as someone who has owned a business, owns yeah. a business and employs people and has those issues top of mind. Well, we've talked about it a little bit before. My biggest fear at the moment is a lack of understanding of this technology, what it's capable of, what its limitations are, and that the people at the top of companies and agencies and media, you know, outlets and publishers, whatever, the ones that are going to make the decisions about the impact on staffing probably don't understand the technology driving those decisions. Mm. Um, so I think, and, and given the economy at the moment, I think there's going to be way more pressure on reduction of workforces and AI is going to believe to be an ability to continue to maintain productivity levels while reducing workforce. Hasn't so, that been what the tech companies themselves have been saying that Microsoft's and Facebook's? Microsoft's well, I think Meta was the first one to not so overtly say we're going to use AI instead of the 10,000 people. Uh, everybody else, I think a lot of the layoffs were basically just like, if you look at Twitter, I mean, that was like the, you know, the prime example for everybody. That was just like, this is just a bloated organization. We don't need all these people. I don't know that like Elon Musk had some grand plan to replace them with AI agents or anything like that. And then I think a lot of tech companies were under massive pressure to follow that lead because then their investors and the stock market, you know, Wall Street were pressuring them to make cuts because, well, if Twitter can function with 80% less people, like you can certainly function with 20% less people. And so the stock prices were getting hammered because these tech companies were now perceived to be bloated in terms of staffing. I don't think I had anything to do with AI. And that's my concern is like, that wasn't even AI cuts yet. Mm. Same thing with, I've always worried about media companies, like as tough as media models have been, it had nothing to do with AI the last three to five years. You had all these layoffs of journalists and, um, you know, producers and all this. And it's like, wasn't even AI yet. So I think we're now heading into the AI phase of workforce assessment. And I think it's going to be a mix of pressure to drive efficiency and productivity with fewer people is going to cause job loss and an unprepared society that didn't realize AI was coming for knowledge work as quickly as it is. And so I, I do, I wish I had a more optimistic view in the near term, but I think it's, it's going to get ugly in the next year. I think there's going to be a lot of disruption um, to the workforce. I, I think a lot of people's career paths are going to get shaken up a bit. And the best thing I can say is like, it's scary, but I, I would just be really, really proactive understanding this stuff. Because I do think that the people who seek the knowledge and understand this technology and can be the ones that apply it, they're going to have the best chance. Like, I'm not telling you like it's bulletproof that if you go figure this all out, like your current employer is going to appreciate that knowledge and give you a promotion. And like, you're going to keep your job when everybody else is struggling. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying your chances of being employed and having enormous career potential ahead of you and benefiting from all this change is only going to be possible if you figure this out. So it's the only thing I can say is like, I always, like, I even teach this to my kids. My kids are 11 and 10. Like life is messy. It's imperfect. It's hard. Um, and the only way you can get through it is to control all the variables you can. So like when, when life is hard or business is hard, you just have to buckle down and do it. Like, what can I control today? 
And what you can control today is learn AI, experiment it, become confident in your abilities with it, be the one in your organization that understands this stuff. That's the only control variable you have at the moment. You can't, you can't control how quickly this happens and you know, what it's going to do in society and the workforce and whether AGI is going to come around. You have no control over that. But you can control your own career path and what you choose to do with this knowledge. And I think that's the best thing you can do. It's, but that's what it's always been. It's just always learn. If you get stagnant, as hard as it is to keep up, but if you get stagnant, then you're, you're not going to be putting yourself in the best position to kind of weather the next year or two as the economy is down and AI is coming for knowledge work. Like that's, it's just the perfect storm right now. Um, if the economy was humming along and we weren't having to lay people off for financial reasons, then maybe it's not as bad. But I think the fact that it came for knowledge work so quickly and the economy sucks, it, it, I just, I don't feel great about the next like 12 to 18 months um, and the impact it's going to have on workers. I think that's at least very good advice for us to be able to navigate kind of this new normal moving forward. And I think kind of in the interests of providing people with as much knowledge as possible, you know, we've got a ton of rapid fire topics, might be a yeah. little bit of a fire hose, station, <laughs> but there's a bunch going on. I fully anticipate our rapid fire sections to get more and more populated as we see this accelerating rate of innovation. So let's just dive into these real quick here at the end of the episode. So first up is a funding announcement from character.ai. So this is a rapidly growing conversational AI company. They just raised $150 million in a Series A round led by Andreessen Horowitz. So they're valued now at a billion dollars. They were founded by ex-Google engineers. And basically, they allow you to create personalized AI companions and talk to them. So they have these pre-built companions that include, you know, ones that mimic famous people like Elon Musk. They mimic made-up characters like Tony Stark. And some are just like overall AI helpers, like a programming assistant. And what's really crazy here is how explosive their growth has been. They launched in beta in September of 2022. And they have since become one of the top 400 websites worldwide in terms of traffic. And they have seen their users send 2 billion messages to these AI conversational companions. And what's really crazy is a billion of those were in the last month alone. So, Paul, I just wanted to get your thoughts on character.ai just because the funding is significant, the growth is incredible, and it's probably one of those companies where, you know, if you follow the space, you know of them. But to the wider world, we don't really hear a lot about character.ai compared to the open AIs of the world. So why is this company significant? Yeah, so they, I mean, part of the reason is because they didn't really officially launch. We talked about it on episode 25, it looks like, on December 5th was when they tweeted, like, hey, introducing character.ai to the world. Now, we'd been tracking them for probably close to a year at that point. Because one of their founders, uh, Noam, he he was one of the co-authors of Attention is All You Need, which is the paper we've talked about before from the Google team in 2017 that created the transformer architecture that's the basis for GPT. So that was kind of like why they had been on my radar is once you know I knew that he had gone off to start that company, co-found that company, sort of been tracking the authors of that paper because um, that's Aiden Gomez. We've talked about Aiden before, the co-founder and CEO of Cohere, which is another language model company. 
that was also one of the authors of that paper. So that paper and that team um, has sort of like gone on to become many of the influential leaders in the language model space because they all kind of played a role in not only that paper, but some of them worked on like Lambda, the language model at Google. So yeah, I think it's, it, they're a really big deal because language models appear to be the foundation of all of the innovation we're seeing in intelligence right now. Now, obviously image is going to play a role in video and code and all this stuff, but at the, at the core of it all is this transformer architecture. So the people who know how to build, know what the capabilities and limitations are, they're worth following. And while I have explored character that I haven't actually like tested use cases and stuff with it yet, I can't talk specifically to here's my experience and my personal thoughts on it, but there's enough um, traction around them and enough kind of pedigree of where this all came from that they absolutely weren't paying attention to. And even the subhead of that, you know, the article I, I believe was from our friend Cade Metz mm. um, at the New York Times, he said, um, it's has, the Silicon Valley company is among the few startups poised to compete with open AI. Mm. So again, if, if Cade's telling us that they're on par with open AI or potentially coming at them, then got to pay attention. Awesome. So next up is a recent study by computer scientists at the University of Maryland revealed some research that indicates the existing methods for detecting text that's generated by these large language models may be very unreliable. So they basically argued that, you know, even subtle paraphrasing of the text that some of these models put out can significantly reduce our ability to detect the accuracy of whether or not it's human or AI generated. So basically what this means is it sounds like many tools that claim to be able to detect AI generated content with a high degree of accuracy probably aren't actually able to do so or are very easily thwarted. So when you read this, is there, were you surprised by anything here? Or is, I mean, is there any credible way to consistently detect AI generated text? I have yet to see anything that says this is possible. Like every, re every study we've seen, every research paper, um, pretty much confirms that this is not a reliable way to figure this out. So whether you're using it to find papers written at university by students or trying to like identify misinformation, what we've always assumed is it's going to be AI versus AI. Like somebody builds an AI detection tool and somebody else builds a AI masking tool. Like it's, I, I've yet to see any credible source say that they think this is a solvable problem. Hmm. Like, so I just, I would continue under the assumption that we cannot rely on AI to save us from AI. I think is what I actually tweeted <laughs> when I shared this is like, AI isn't going to save us from AI. Like let's, let's um, <laughs> try and find another way here. All right. So Another big announcement, Adobe Firefly. Adobe is launching a family of creative generative AI models called collectively Adobe Firefly. So basically it's giving you the ability to generate images and stylize text. And these tools are going to actually be integrated into all of Adobe's creative apps. So you're going to have generative AI in Photoshop, Illustrator, et cetera. Now here's what jumped out to me as the really interesting part of this. Adobe ensures that their models are trained on copyright-free, licensed, or Adobe stock library data. So basically preventing potential issues that we run into around ownership and copyright 
with artists and brands. And they also have some plans to compensate artists who contribute to the training data. So I wanted to get your take on their approach to the copyright licensing and kind of artistic ownership issue here. Is this kind of a viable way forward to address some of the challenges we're seeing in that space? It, it sure seems like it. And I, I think this is similar to like we've talked about with AI writing uh, in recent weeks where it's only a matter of time till the big legacy tech companies show up mm-hmm. and do everything all these startups are trying to do. So, you know, Grammarly shows up, they got 30 million people, you know, 30 million users. So Grammarly enables a writing tool and it's like, oh boy, like if you were making a writing tool and you're trying to compete with Grammarly, that, that gets pretty difficult. Google uh, Workspace has, you know, everything baked in. If Microsoft 365 Copilot has everything baked in, and now you get into like the design side. It's like, okay, well, Adobe, no stranger to AI, but kind of asleep at the wheel on the generative AI thing mm-hmm. for a few months. But as we've said before, if you have proprietary data and you have distribution, meaning you have a massive customer base, you can not only catch up really fast, you can basically obsolete all the startups real fast. And so I think it just, it makes it a very complex scenario for early stage features because in reality what's happening is a lot of generative ai right now is building what end up being features in a larger platform and so if adobe shows up and they figure this out and they do it well i mean certainly the demos are impressive or what it appears to be able to do is impressive if it actually delivers on that then you got some problems if you're building a one-off tool in this space and so yeah, I mean, it, it's a big deal because Adobe's a big deal. Massive customer base. <laughs> and if they can bake this stuff in and I don't need to go outside of it to do, you know, AI for uh, slides and AI for, you know, uh, landing pages. And AI, like, if I can just do it all in Adobe, great. Like, I'd rather not have seven licenses, but I'd rather one. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think like we're going to, over the next 12 months, you're going to either see this, you're going to see an explosion of generative tools, but they may not last very long mm-hmm. because if the platforms figure out how to do this and they have the data and distribution to own the market, then you could see like a massive consolidation back where it's like, oh, it's just rather than adding 25 generative AI tools in 2023, maybe you just like, oh, well, Salesforce has it and HubSpot's got it and Adobe's got it. Like we don't need all these tools anymore. Let's just do it all within these. And maybe there's some sacrifices, like it's not as feature rich as maybe some of the purpose-built tools, but it's enough where you don't want to have to pay the other licenses. Again, especially in this economy, like you don't have budgets to go get 25 new tools. Right. If the one you're already paying $7,000 a month for has all the capabilities you need. So another great example of what you just said is that NVIDIA is also making a play here. They announced a suite of cloud services designed to accelerate enterprise adoption of generative AI. So basically, they enable businesses to create large language models and generative AI applications using proprietary data. They're calling this uh, broadly NVIDIA foundations. So there are companies like Getty Images, Morningstar, Shutterstock, who are kind of the pilot customers of using NVIDIA AI Foundation services. And these span all the kind of generative AI use cases we just talked about, you know, language, images, video, and 3D. So we're basically giving enterprises the ability to bake generative AI right into their own business models, using their own data, and using their own proprietary services and apps. So 
How important is it for enterprises to have this ability to create custom models, use their own data? Why is something like an NVIDIA Foundations better than just like using gen generic tools or GPT-4 or whatever? I think, I mean, the, the key takeaway for me here is just there are so many marketers and business people who have no idea who NVIDIA is or who Jensen, the CEO, is. Like, mm -hmm. it's it's almost shocking how little people know about NVIDIA. And none of the stuff we're talking about AI happens without NVIDIA. Their, their GPUs power AI. They were originally built for gaming, like for, you know, online gaming and speed and everything. And then they realized, you know, sometime in the late, you know, early 2010s, like the teens, that these chips could power artificial intelligence and all this deep learning movement in language and vision and stuff. Um, Jensen, the CEO, delivered the first like supercomputer to open AI to build GPT. Like, so that they are at the core of everything. So I have been insanely bullish on NVIDIA as a company because they are the infrastructure to AI. They enable all of this. And so I just think that they're making a play now to become more and more relevant at the enterprise level and this idea of custom models and these foundations. Um, it's going to be something you're going to start becoming in contact with more. Again, there may be a lot of people who invest in NVIDIA personally, like as an AI stock. Um, I'm not giving stock advice, but I, I have been bullish on NVIDIA for a really long time. Um, but I think you're going to start to see more real application or hearing the name NVIDIA more in kind of actual business and marketing circles where previously it wasn't really a company that would be talked about, like as your tech stack, you weren't thinking about them as a player. So I just pay attention to NVIDIA. They're, they're doing insane stuff. Like if you go watch his keynote mm -hmm. from last week and look at some of the demos they're doing and the things they're building. I mean, it's just one of the most advanced companies in the world um, from an AI perspective. Gotcha. All right. So last but not least, we have an interesting article that- Page six. This is like our page six. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Yeah, it's super, super important. And yet it's still <laughs> buried on page six. <laughs> so an article from Semaphore dives in through some kind of exclusive interviews about what they're calling this, quote, secret history of Elon Musk, who we all know, and Sam Altman, who is the CEO of OpenAI. So I'm not sure everyone who follows us or follows the podcast knows that, you know, for quite a while, Elon Musk was an integral part of OpenAI helping found it as a nonprofit, uh, along with people like Reid Hoffman, um, kind of giving some initial funding for it and being heavily involved in its operations. So this article dives into the kind of rift that has happened between Musk and Altman. Musk left OpenAI years ago, largely over butting heads with Altman about the direction of the company. And so why this matters is that we're actually in recent weeks increasingly seeing Elon Musk tweet quite a bit about the direction of artificial intelligence and come at OpenAI specifically. So, Paul, you are intimately familiar with, you know, the work of Elon Musk and Sam Altman. What was your takeaway reading this article and on this overall conflict between the two and what that might mean for AI? I just, I just thought it was fascinating, kind of more from like a, like a curiosity perspective and again, almost like rumor mill sort yeah. of stuff. Like people just love that kind of stuff. But the, like the Cade Metz book, Genius Makers, which we've referred to on the show before, tells the story of the founding of OpenAI and how it all came together, which is fascinating in its own right. 
but when Elon Musk left and they became for profit and it was kind of like it was it wasn't like super bitter breakup. It didn't appear. But in recent months, there has definitely been a lot of like undertone in the, the tweets from everybody about, um, you know, Elon Musk. Like, I, I don't know how I give 100 million to a nonprofit that all of a sudden becomes a for profit and blah, blah, blah. But when you go through this article, it's like, oh, OK, like this is starting to make a little bit more sense where the falling out occurred and why it occurred. And at the time they positioned it as Elon Musk was investing heavily in building AI at Tesla and was like starting to have some conflicts of interest as a board member in particular took Andres Karpathy and moved him like went from OpenAI to Tesla. So now you're starting mm -hmm. to like steal talent while you're on the board of the company. And so that was how they positioned it. But this article makes it appear like that, that maybe that was an issue, but no, it was, there was a very big difference in direction um, strategically. And it sounds like Musk wanted control and, so I think the, the what end up what end up being the most relevant part of this is there's been some murmurs that Musk hasn't really put uh, quelled. I would say that he's just going to build his own version of the true OpenAI. So the the challenge has become OpenAI has become closed. They're not sharing anything. And as we talked about, I think in the last episode, they're basically saying, yeah, we made a mistake. We shouldn't have been sharing everything we were building. We're now going to keep everything in house. We're not going to explain how we do this, how we train them, how big the models are. None of it. Um, and Elon Musk is like, well, that's the wrong approach. And so either Musk's just going to go fund the companies that are doing the open approach, or he's just going to do it himself, knowing him, like find somebody else to run Twitter eventually. And, and then he can free up his time to have a 12th company to, to do this. <laughs> like, um, but they definitely have very diverging opinions of AI. Musk is, is sort of a, it's going to end the world guy. Like he, mm. he really sees, uh, the, the downside um uh and isn't shy about talking about that and he may be right like i don't know um sam altman and OpenAI tend to prefer like well we got to push forward and we'll figure it out as we go so i, I don't know i think it's a, it's just a fascinating because they're the people that are going to influence the future of society for better or for worse mm -hmm. worse like we we have no choice these these are the people leading this tech and one way or another they're going to have an impact not only on your jobs, but on your industries, on the business world and on society. So it's just, we got to pay attention to these people um, because their decisions are going to affect all of us moving forward. So, and it's just fascinating. <laughs> There's no lack of fascination among all these stories. Uh, Paul, Paul, as always, thank <laughs> you awesome. for staying on top of artificial intelligence. So our audience can too. We so appreciate the insights and, uh, you know, I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about next week. Yeah. And like we said, I think the takeaway for me again is like, as hard as it is to keep up on this and as daunting as the task is be, it's, it's your best path forward. So like try and focus on the positive and the opportunities ahead, keep learning, keep exploring, keep challenging yourself to, you know, find the, the threads about AI that you find fascinating, explore those. Um, and, and you'll come out ahead. Like I, it'll, I, I do believe it's all going to work out, but I think that people who are proactive, have the best chance of, um, near term and long term benefiting from artificial intelligence. And we just need more smart, smart people asking the hard questions. And that's what I love about the comments section of my LinkedIn post. It's like super smart people asking really good, hard questions that I don't always have the answers to. But I love that people are asking them and I, I know that they're talking about them, you know, with their friends and in their in their organizations. And that's what we need. Just more conversation, more dialogue so we can all try and like move in a positive direction for this. So 
Thank you as always. Hopefully we'll see some of you at the AI for Writers Summit this week. Uh, otherwise, we'll be back next week with another episode and I'm sure a bunch of new updates next week. So thanks as always, Mike. Talk to everybody next week. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Marketing AI Show. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you're ready to continue your learning, head over to marketingaiinstitute.com. Be sure to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, check out our free monthly webinars, and explore dozens of online courses and professional certifications. Until next time, stay curious and explore AI.